If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to, to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them plague he inflicts on the nations and do not, that do not go up to celebrate the festivals of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of, e of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festivals of tabernacles. On that, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and, Ju and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will, be, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Almighty Lord. This is God's word, and you may be seated. I'll let you in on a, a, a little bit of a secret. Uh, you know how much uh, I, I love the Word of God, and I love every book in the Bible, and uh, they're all to be preached. Uh, I find Zechariah, probably, at least for me personally, to be the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret. Uh, maybe not so much the, uh, the first eight chapters, but beginning primarily in chapter 9 and going to the end of chapter 14, you find what has been uh, notably among uh, scholars for, for many, many, many years uh, uh, a lot of debate as to, uh, with some preciseness, what it is that Zechariah is talking about. And I think that you can know with some, some, uh, some degree of, of certainty, but it is, it is a book that, that really begs for you to read slowly and to ponder and to think deeply about its message and about its imagery and about its words, especially in the context of, in history of when it's being written. Now, that is uh, uh, what we're going to be doing tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at Zechariah. Next Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at Malachi, and that's going to be really the last book of the Old Testament that we're going to look at. The first Sunday in October, we're going to begin the, uh, the study of the New Testament, and we are going to be done by about the 21st of December with a study this year of every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and we will have uh, reached that goal. Before we, we look at Zechariah tonight, though, let's, um, let's ask God to bless us. Father, we pray for our hearts to be right and our, our minds uh, to be right with you as, as we enter into the words of Zechariah. And as we, we survey this book tonight, Father, we, we ask with all of our heart that you will give us the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it in a way, Father, that we are moved closer to you. We, we tremble, Father, at the very knowledge of your insight into all of history and into all of creation and into our lives. We... we we at times, Father, um, recognize, at least at an intellectual level, that you are all of all of these these attributes of omnipotence and omniscience, omnibenevolent, all of these, Father. But then we read Zechariah, and all of it is driven home that this is not just intellectual exercise, but this is this is a revelation 
of who you are, not only in the lives of Zechariah and the repatriated Hebrews, but you're in our life as well. That you have a knowledge of who we are, of what we go through, a knowledge of our hearts, and that you see our future. We pray, Father, to be strengthened in our resolve to be disciples of your Son and to live as He lived. We also pray, Father, that we will never, ever, ever take for granted the grace that comes to us, the the work of Jesus on the cross, His faith, His righteousness being passed on to us, Father, as He took on our sin so that we might find ourselves as Your children. Thank You for that, Father. It is... It is not enough, but we say it anyway, that you are our treasure. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When Cyrus gave the decree that the Hebrews could return to the land, it was a reversal, as you know, of a long series of misfortunes. 50,000 people in that first wave of Hebrews returned to the land and they were excited about the, the beginning of rebuilding once again the temple and that wall around Jerusalem. And from that point on, what you'll notice in, in all of those post-exilic prophets is that it's, it's the temple, not the monarchy. It is the place of worship. It is the place recognized for the presence of God that becomes the rallying point for the Hebrews, not the monarchy. The monarchy and, the, and a son of David on the throne, at least in this period of time, is just going to be a figment of historical memory. And the momentum to finish the temple and the wall would be great because they were going back to the land. And because of the fulfillment of the prophecy and all of the words, primarily I'm thinking of of, of Jeremiah coming true, it got the people's attention. And they go back to the land with enthusiasm, but, but that enthusiasm is not going to be sustained on the outside. In fact, from the outside, there's there's going to be a lot of pushback. And unfortunately, on the inside of the Hebrew nation at this time, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be some, some faithless living and some, some ignoring of Torah that is again going to affect the people in their relationship with God. But at the same time, it's going to be from the inside of Israel, from the inside of the nation, that there are going to be these, these, uh, these, these, these times or these moments of encouragement and enthusiasm that are going to be remo- re- renewed. That it's going to come from a guy by the name of Haggai that we considered this morning who provided some resurgence of that enthusiasm for the building of the temple. He would speak for God or God would speak through him and say, is it really right that you should be living in this house that is finished and paneled when my house, that is the temple, is lying in ruin? And not that God was looking for a place to live. He lives in the cosmos. But it was, it was, a, it was a place of priority. That if his house was in ruin, then that probably meant that he had not taken up residence in their heart. And so he speaks through Haggai and says, Is this right? You need to to go to the mountain and bring, bring down the timber and to build my house the place where I'm going to be honored. But it's not just going to be Haggai during this period of time that is going to try to bring about this enthusiasm and and renewed encouragement for the people to really get with what it means being the people of God. There's going to be another. We read first about him, actually in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12. Uh, Notice verse 1. These were the priests and the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Joshua. So we know about that first wave of 50,000 coming from, from, from Babylon. And then we drop down to verse 16 and we read of Idos, and that is his family, 
fellow by the name of Zechariah. Now you remember that the decree of Cyrus was in 539 B.C. By the time we get to Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1, where we're, we're not just introduced to this guy as a priest, but now as a prophet, it is the eighth month of the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. And the word of the Lord would come to Zechariah, believe it or not, nearly two years after the, 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 uh, the, the time that they were uh, repatriating the land in 539. It's now 520 B.C. It's the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And the things that Zechariah would talk about, for the most part, even though we not, we're not really sure about when chapters 9 through 14 actually were, were part of the vision that Zechariah saw, but those first eight chapters are going to take place over a two-year period. It would continue until the fourth month of the fourth year. That's chapter 7 and verse 1. It's a period of a little over two years that this priest serves as a prophet. Now, what are the, the lessons from the priest who is acting as a prophet? Well, number one, there is in the first six chapters a call to repentance. Zechariah just adds his voice to a long history of Israel's prophets that are calling the nation to repent, to make their way straight, to, to prepare their hearts to live in such a way that, that God is honored and God is magnified. And he does something very simple. All he does is ask them to think back on their own history. And in thinking back on their own history, to remember the fact that God had sent to them a lot of prophets, a lot of servants called His prophets, that came and spoke a message to them over and over again. And the messages were communicated with different words and maybe in different means of, of communication, but the message was always the same. Think of Jeremiah chapter 25, those first couple of verses basically gave the message that God spoke again and again and again to His people and again and again and again they would not listen. And although God sent prophet after prophet, the people ignored the messages and the curses. And the warnings about the curses were going to come. And they did fall. And they were a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 28. All of that came true in the life of Israel. And so now at the very beginning of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah, not as a priest, but as a prophet, says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will what? Return to you. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets. Do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as He determined to do. And so the book really starts off kind of at a high point with, with Zechariah coming and as the people have rebuilt the temple and worship is beginning again to be centered in their life, especially after they have returned to the land and about 19 years have passed and they have allowed that temple to lay dormant and not to be rebuilt and not for it to become the center of community life and Israel's identity, that we are the people of God in whom God Himself dwells. And they repent. And they say, we have, we've gotten what we really deserved. I mean, God 
warned us. We did not listen. He got our attention. We want to do right. We repent. We will do just as He wants us to do. And then three months later, we're now in verse 7. Three months later, from that moment of repentance, it's from the 8th month to the 11th month, Zechariah, and it appears that he has in one night eight visions. And vision one is from chapter 1, verse 7 through verse 17. It's the patrolling of the earth vision. Zechariah sees a man that's later in verse 11 identified as an angel among the myrtle trees with a red sorrel and white horses behind him. And Zechariah wants to know, what in the world are these? And this man in the, the, the myrtle tree says, these are those who patrol the earth communicating to Zechariah, who's going to communicate to the people that even though you're, you look in your own eyes to be weak and not very strong, and Israel is still in a state of disrepair, God knows what is happening all over the earth. But it doesn't stop with just God having knowledge. There is this, this, this angel who prays to God for compassion to fall on Jerusalem. And that was to encourage Israel to know that there was one that was going to be interceding and advocating for them. And God answers that question in the, or the, the, the plea for compassion in the prayer with very reassuring words. Well, right on the heels of that, beginning in verse 18, you have the second vision, which is the enemy's defeated. And it's a very short vision, and it's right to the point. Zechariah sees these four horns, and as you know, horns represent strength, and these four horns represent the strong peoples who have scattered Israel throughout history. But it's the craftsmen, again, kind of difficult to know who the craftsmen are, but these four horns are going to be defeated by the craftsmen. Then beginning in chapter 2 and going from chapter 1 to uh, 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 verse 1 through the end of the chapter, verse 13, you have vision 3. It's God's favor that's going to fall down on Zion. And the vision begins with a guy with a measuring tape, and he's measuring Jerusalem to see how big it is. And the point that he's trying to make is that Jerusalem is going to have to get a whole lot bigger. because, In fact, it's going to have to get gigantic because there's going to be a lot of people that are going to live inside of Jerusalem. And it's going to be, which is another way of saying that this is a city that is going to flourish. In fact, it's going to be a city that is not going to need walls, not so much because there's so many people expanding it, but because of the glory of God that is going to surround it, that's going to protect them from danger. And not only that, in verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. It is a, a worldwide exhaustive scope of, of the nations, of the people of the world. Coming and recognizing God. And then in chapter 3, we have vision 4, where it's really about Joshua the high priest. The vision begins with God rebuking Satan. It begins with God rebuking Satan. And then there's this picture of Joshua, who is the high priest, and he's, seeing, he's seen wearing these really filthy, dirty clothes. And after God has rebuked Satan, his voice speaks to to, uh, to, to th those, those beings surrounding Joshua, and he says that those filthy clothes are to be removed from him. And he's to be given different kinds of clothes, the clothes of a priest. And these filthy clothes are to be removed as a, as a symbol for the fact that all of his sins have been removed from him. And that Joshua himself, as this forgiven high priest, would serve the people as God's representative. And as he served God, he would work to bring forth the, the idea. And this is, this is one of the interesting things about the book of Zechariah. He, when we read this in English, it says probably in all capital letters the word branch. Well, the branch was a, 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 a word that by the time of Jesus was just filled with all kinds of messianic 
baggage. I mean, it was just when anybody thought about the branch out of Zechariah, they were thinking about the Messiah. Now, the interesting thing about that word branch is that it's the word netzer. Netzer, N-E-T-Z-E-R is the way you would spell it in, in a transliterated English. It is the netzer. And this high priest, this Joshua, is, is working to, 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 to bring forth this, this netzer, this branch, this Messiah. Well, then vision 5 is chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 14. It's the candlestick and the two olive trees. And this vision symbolizes how the community was relying on Joshua and Zerubbabel's leadership. And it's out of this particular vision that we have in verse 6, that really, really famous verse that you sometimes come across in movies and maybe, you know, it sounds very biblical, but you're not quite sure where it's found. It's found here. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so you have this candlestick and the two olive trees. And as we saw this morning, Zerubbabel was facing what looked like a mountain of problems to the fulfillment of his work as the new governor of Israel. And in this vision, Zechariah is going to, uh, to communicate to Zechariah that he can do what it is that he has been called to do, even though there look to him to be these insurmountable odds. You know, uh, one of the things I've discovered about myself is that sometimes I can take a molehill and turn it into a mountain. What God does, and what He's trying to show uh, through Zechariah, is that Zerubbabel, you can do this because God can take a mountain and turn it into a molehill. God is showing Zerubbabel that He can do because God Himself knows what's happening in the world and He does not despise small beginnings. And then vision six, chapter five, verses one through four, another kind of a kind of a kind of a weird scene. When you think about it, you try and close your eyes and imagine what it would look like for Zechariah to see this in the middle of the night, this sixth vision, the flying scroll. This flying scroll is a reminder of the holiness that God ex- expects of his people. And then beginning in verse 5 and going to the end of the chapter, you have vision 7, which is a woman. And again, it's sort of crazy imagery, but you never forget it as long as you live. You have this woman sitting in an ephah or an ephah basket. And the idea, as these, these women show up and grab this basket and take it off to the land of Shinar, that it is, there is going to be the removal of idolatry from the land and the things that defile the land and the things that are evil in the sight of God. It's going to be transferred to Shinar or to Babylon. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, you have the eighth vision, and it's the chariots and the crown. And again, there, there are some similarities between the eighth vision and the first vision of these patrols, this time chariots, not horses, going throughout the earth. And the difference, though, now is, is that the judgment that was sort of alluded to in the first chapter has now been brought on the enemies of Israel and of God. And then there's this, this part of the vision where the, this gold and silver are, are, are made into this ornate crown that symbolizes the combining of the royal and priestly offices that are in the Netzer or the branch or the Messiah. And so you have all of these visions taking place at night and they're all somehow in very vivid language and in imagery that Zechariah, let alone, you know, anybody else would ever forget about how God knows exactly what's happening all over the earth. It's not just 
uh, an intellectual knowledge, but it's a knowledge that He is powerful enough to, to interact and to intercede and to do things in history and to do things among peoples and to do things inside of His creation because of His power and His righteousness. And these visions are communicated to Israel in the sense that God knows what they are facing. And that God, if they have the faith to follow and to trust and to obey, has the means and the plans and the doors opening and the path and the footsteps that they are to follow in order to be His nation among all the nations. Well, in chapter 7, you have kind of a, a break in the vision action and you have these questions about fasting. It, it's questions, plural, by God based on a question, singular, that come from a couple of fellows who, uh, who visit Zechariah from Bethel, a fellow by the name of Sherezer, and the other one is Regamelech. And they ask a pretty important question in Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 3. Now, again, you know, time has passed. People are trying to do what, what, uh, what they need to be doing. And there are questions that arise because, you know, of practices and, and because of the direction that, that they're heading. And they want to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. And so they ask in verse 3, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Uh, it should, I think in some versions it says the fifth and the seventh month. Now what's interesting about that is the fifth month is the month to commemorate the burning of Jerusalem. And the seventh month commemorates the assassination of Gedaliah after uh, Jerusalem has fallen. And, and God speaks to this question, should we keep fasting in the fifth and seventh month like we've been doing for years? And God answers through Zechariah with a few questions of His own. He says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months for the past 70 years, was it for me that you were actually fasting? How many of you have fasted and discovered at the end of the day that what you really hungered for was food? I remember uh, probably 14 years ago was taking a, a course in graduate school that had to do with the spiritual disciplines. And uh, the professor was really smart. And, you know, he, he knew that all of us, you know, had been in ministry for a while. You know, we had fasted. We knew what fasting was about. And, but he wanted to, to drive it home a little bit more deeply to us. He said, here, I want you guys between now and the next class to spend at least one day fasting. And we said, okay. And so we fasted one day. We came back. And all of us were talking about how hard it was, how hungry we were. We were, uh, we were always, you know, kind of thinking about food. And we were kind of being reminded of the fact that, you know, we were missing some meals and some things like that. And then he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fast again. But this time I want you to fast and I want you to read these psalms throughout the day. And I want you to pray over these things throughout the day. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go without food. But this time go without food for the purpose of godliness. And so when we came back to class that following week, he asked, how was it? It was completely different. Why? Because it wasn't just us going without food. It wasn't us just hungering because we weren't having meals. It was us hungering for God and being satisfied. And so God asked in verse 5, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you were actually fasting? Were you going without food because you were really hungry for me? And when you eat and drink, verse 6, is it not really for yourselves? Bottom line, 
whether or not they were fasting as an expression of feeling sorry for themselves or was it an expression of humility, of humbling themselves before God. And in that fasting, for the right reason, fasting for God because they were hungering for God and thinking about God and not really satisfying themselves with food or with drink or with anything else, but satisfying themselves with thoughts of God and the Word of God and the presence of God and prayer to God, did it really humble them to the point that they really began in that humility and in the presence of God and fasting for God and hungering for God, did it remind them of the call to practice justice and and to be kind and to be compassionate in the land? Or were they thinking about how their actions led to the destruction of the city and of the nation? And the past 70 years in exile in a foreign nation. And was it a reminder in, 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 in going without the food and going without the drink and going without all of that preparation? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, if we get hungry, we go down to the Sonic and boom. They, you don't even have to get out of your car to eat in, in America. I mean, you can just drive someplace... They give it to you. You keep going. And in our car, you know, when I was growing up, and and a lot of you the same way, I can remember when cars did not have cup holders. I can remember the very first car that we bought that had a cup holder. It was a a Pontiac Bonneville. You opened up the glove compartment, and it would fold down, and it was kind of like a, a big tray with a place to put a glass and a place to put a sandwich. And my dad went, what in the world? We'll never use that. And then as we, you know, we're traveling along in that Bonneville through the years and, you know, traveling back and forth between Washington, D.C. and Dallas, Texas, we began to see these little things that, you know, you would, you would stick them down inside of the, uh, the, the window and it would kind of have a place for you to hang a cup. And we just thought it was the greatest thing. My dad spent a quarter on buying five of those things and we all got it. We thought Christmas had arrived early. We were going to have a place to put our cans of Coke in the car. And so, you, you know, there's, there's this... This, 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 this phenomena in our country where, you know, when you want to eat, you just automatically eat. Go to the fridge. You don't have to prepare anything. And if you do have to prepare something, it can just be a microwave. In the time of Israel that Zechariah is living, when you got hungry and it came time to eat, it would take a lot of energy and it would take a lot of time. And he's saying, when you, when you, when you fast... Are you really thinking about me? Are you really listening to me? Are you really looking to be humble and to obey me? If in their fasting the people would think and to learn from their past actions, Zechariah is saying, there's going to be hope. That God would transform Zion and establish it as a city of truth. That the streets... One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 8, talking about this day in which the city would be transformed and there would be boys and girls, the sounds of boys and girls laughing and playing in the streets. And their fast would be turned into feasts. Well, now we get to uh, the last section. And it's the purposes for the future, beginning in chapter 9, going through the end of chapter 41, verse uh, uh, 23 or so, 21 or 23. The first section, this section actually has two parts to it. The first section, which is the beginning of chapter 9 that goes through chapter 11, deals with the future kingdom of God. That God's judgment is going to fall on God's enemies. That there's going to be a very different kind of a king that's going to come. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, a very famous passage uh, that we see over in the New Testament. Uh, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And God is just kind of reworking their imagination in terms of what it means to be led by His kind of leader. And it's not going to be a military. It's going to be a different kind. It's going to be a lowly kind of king, a humble king riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey that is going to lead his people. In chapter 10, there's going to be this new exodus, a new exodus that's going to be experienced by the faithful. And the second section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, envisions a day in which the kingdom of God is going to be inaugurated again. And it will come in the recognition of the one that they have pierced in chapter 12. There's going to be a new light that dawns. There's going to be a new water. There's going to be a new king, a new land, a new peace, a new worship in Jerusalem, and new holiness in men. Chapter 14. And the more you read it with these, these wild images, and it begins to work its way and wedge its way inside of your imagination as you begin to think about the, the, the ways that God is going to work and the newness of it all. That God's knowledge of the world that's sent out by these patrols, whether it's the horses or the chariots, is not just, just a knowledge that you know, He's filling up a database or some kind of a databank in order to know and to know and to know, but it is a knowledge on which all of His actions are based. And then you begin to realize that some centuries later, in this, this little Messianic community to the west of, of the Sea of Galilee, that whose, whose very name was based on the Hebrew word Netzer. A little town called Nazareth. That there was this, this son of a carpenter who became this itinerant rabbi. And that last verse of, of Zechariah chapter 14 that talks about in this holy place inside of the temple there will not be any Canaanites. The, 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 the scholars, the, the, the interpreters really struggle with that word. The word Canaanite is actually more literally translated the word merchants. There will be no merchants in that holy place. And it doesn't take a whole lot of biblical knowledge to remember that there was a beginning time, uh, uh, there was a point at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end of his ministry where he called attention to the fact that this place, this temple, the place where the sacrifices take place, the place where the nations were actually able to come at least somewhat close to the presence of God in worship was not a place of prayer, that it was not a place of spirituality, but that it was a place of, 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 of rivalry. And it was a place of, of bad business practices. And it was not a place of prayer. It was a place that corrupted the spirit of prayer. And he began to drive those merchants out of that holy place. And as we read through that story of Jesus we begin to see that He is not just the one talked about in Isaiah 52 and 53, but He's also the one that's talked about in Zechariah 12, the one who is pierced, the one who is rejected. And that He is the one that brings a new living kind of water. And it is a new light because He is the light of the world who brings light to the hearts of men. And that it is, it is a new holiness and a new worship. It's going to be spirit and in truth. And it is a new land. It's not just, it's not just a, a people of God by DNA. But it's a, a new people because of, of their relationship with God. Their adoption as children. 
those that were far away having been brought near, those that were aliens are now being made partners, that the cross is taking the two and making them one man in Christ. And they're led by this new king. And he's not the kind of king that enslaves, and he's not the kind of king that oppresses, but he's the kind of king who took on all that bad stuff in order for us not to. And there's a lot that I don't understand about what Zechariah is trying to say, and I promise you I'll spend the rest of my life thinking about it and reveling in, in, in his revelation of the future. But what he has given me and has given you in terms of a glimpse of the greatness of his work, the might of his power, not just in working with nations, which sometimes seems very easy, but in changing a human heart, that's hard work. But he did it through the Messiah who came riding across the Kidron Valley, went through the Golden Gate into the temple grounds, and the people were saying to him, Hosanna, 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 save. And they probably did not know what they were saying. But we know what they meant. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And the fact that we are sinners does not mean that, you know, we make mistakes with our life and that, you know, we've chosen some wrong paths. And really what we need to do because of the sin that's present in our life is we just need a new way of living as if it's possible to change a human heart that way. Now, one of the things I hope that we, we've seen about sin and the definition of sin and the nature of sin throughout this study from Genesis all the way to Zechariah, Malachi next week, the Gospels the week after that, is that sin is not just uh, an act, but sin is the, the, the bend of our heart. That we have been warped. That we are our worst own enemies at times. And that what we need is that one who came in lowly and humble, who left His place of glory in heaven and humbled Himself to become like us and to experience all of the temptations and to experience everything that it means to be a human being, but did it perfectly without sin and did it perfectly in the will of God and was obedient to that will of God even to the point of dying on the cross, even when He did not want to obedient and in faith and in love in order for us to become the fulfillment of those visions in Zechariah. New land, new king, new water, new life, all of that. Brad's going to lead us in a, in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Shepherds, spiritual leaders of our church. And if there are some spiritual needs, whether it's to, to, to come clean with some sin before God and maybe what you need to be doing is praying and fasting over some of that stuff. Or it's to, to come clean in the sense of confessing your sin and having your sins washed away. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Wonderful story of love. Tell it to me again. Wonderful story.